Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We continue in our study there. And this morning we are beginning chapter 2 and reading verses 1 through 11. So once again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else for it. Whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Last week we were introduced to the beginning of Paul's rationale for why God's plan of redemption was and is an absolute necessity. After proclaiming that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Paul begins to speak about the wrath of God that's also revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what followed was a convincing argument as to why God must needs be the author of our salvation. Because the fallen condition of men is such that we are completely incapable of doing anything to satisfy God's wrath over our spiritual rebellion. Our ungodliness and unrighteousness does not lead to enlightenment. It leads to deeper and deeper darkness. And the long list of spiritual deviants that Paul mentions in the closing verses of that first chapter demonstrates how deeply we can fall into sin when we suppress the truth about God and shun His graciousness offered to us. For the more we turn away from the light of Christ 
the greater becomes the darkness of our own thinking. And what Paul itemizes there are not simply abstract possibilities, but are concrete examples of the depth of human depravity that have been on display since Cain murdered Abel and Noah's contemporaries populated the earth, ungodliness that Paul witnessed firsthand throughout the Roman Empire. It is a depravity that we read about every single day in our newspapers. So unless God initiates our rescue, our salvation, we will be eternally lost. Now we said last week that beginning at verse 18, Paul is offering a summation of human history from the fall of Adam until the present time. But he's also doing more than that. He's moving across the spectrum of human sin, dealing first of all with what might be considered the worst of the worst as they might be found among the most paganistic Gentiles. But now he's thinking of a different sinner. Individuals who would not recognize themselves in that first batch, for they have not sunk into those depths of human depravity. They are a more sophisticated, more philosophical, more educated and cultured sinner who sees themselves as being of a higher moral order. Now there is disagreement as to whether Paul is still thinking of the Gentiles here, at the beginning of chapter 2, or has he turned his attention fully to the Jews? But I don't believe that is paramount nor helpful for us to get sidetracked with that. Paul is addressing anyone, Jew or Gentile, who is operating under the mistaken notion that they are inherently good. And I need you to add your own air quotes here. Because we all know Individuals who think of themselves as being good, and they may or may not be religious. They internally consider their goodness as a product of their own making. They operate on a socially acceptable standard of behavior that does not do harm to others or to the environment. They pay their bills on time. They tip the vagrant on the street corner. They They keep their lawn mowed. They regularly take their pets to the vet. They support the Strawberry Festival and donate to the United Way. And when they hear the long list of vile behaviors that Paul lists at the end of chapter 1, they nod their heads in agreement. They shout amen. They are thankful that the apostle is not addressing them. Their tendency is to give themselves a pass. But you see, if they are not in Christ, if they have not come to Him in complete faith, they are no less under the condemnation of God than is the most malicious murderer. Paul is steadily working towards a most inclusive statement that will appear in chapter 3, verse 23, where he declares, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And no one will escape Paul's attention, for he understands that every person must come to the point of recognizing their own fallen condition. For without that understanding, we will never recognize our need for God's plan for salvation. If we do not see ourselves as God sees us, we will fall under the mistaken notion that we are inherently good and that we only occasionally stumble and fall. And we will mistake our spiritual condition as being mildly ill and asymptomatic when the fact is that we are all dead and buried. So Paul is disabusing this man in this argument of the idea that he is righteous in the eyes of God. It says in the ESV, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now typically whenever we see the word therefore, we are trained to ask what the therefore is therefore, because in most cases it is an elative, or or it is making reference to what has immediately preceded it. But in this case, it is difficult to see how the argument in chapter 1 leads to the conclusion that Paul's drawing here. And commentators are equally puzzled about this word deo, which is why Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I think, offers a different take that seems to me to be more on target. He suggests that the word is anticipating what is about to be stated. So he offers this translation. For the following reason, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. We need to realize that Paul knows this man he's speaking to quite well. Because this was a part of Paul's own spiritual blindness when he was known to the world as Saul of Tarsus. He was in the business of judging others. All the while, he turned a blind eye towards himself. When he stood by at the stoning of Stephen, he felt nothing but righteous indignation. He had internally judged Stephen to be guilty of the most blasphemous sins, while he failed to recognize that he was being an accessory to murder. In his mind, the stoning of Stephen was no less justified than was the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. They were both disrupting the people of God. And when Saul gathered the necessary ecclesiastical authority to hunt down and arrest Christians who were fleeing Jerusalem, his judgment was that they were the heretics opposed to the sovereignty of God and not the other way around. So when the Apostle Paul begins this portion of his argument, he understands how this particular self-righteous sinner thinks. He's familiar with the internal arguments that they use to render a verdict concerning another, but they are blind to the fact that in their verdicts there exists a judgment that also falls upon them. 
Because you see, to believe that I have the moral authority to render a verdict on my neighbor is to assume a position of moral superiority that only the Lord himself is fit to hold. So as soon as I decide that my neighbor is guilty, I've already condemned myself, for there is only one fit to sit on the throne of judgment. And I'm guilty of impersonating God. But the judgment that I render is doubly damning when I am guilty of engaging in the very same sinful behavior. There is nothing worse than a judge who reaches a verdict, sentences a man to years in the state penitentiary when the judge is engaged in that very same criminal activity. And this is what Paul means when he says, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice The very same thing. There is no excuse for us. Because in our judging, we are making that judgment based upon some moral code. We are saying that this one's guilty, but a person can be guilty only if there is a code that declares that behavior wrong. So where does that sense of right and wrong originate? When we feel that a behavior is unacceptable and we declare it so, we have given evidence before God that we have the ability to discern between right and wrong. And that removes any excuse we might present for our own sin. We'll never be able to plead ignorance at the judgment, for by our judging, we've condemned ourselves. And as Paul looked back upon his actions as Saul of Tarsus, he realized there was no excuse for his behavior. God had provided him with sufficient revelation that he should have known better, but he judged anyway, and in doing so, he condemned himself. There is only one who will judge rightly, for he sees every act, he hears every word, He discerns every thought of the mind and every motivation of the human heart. There is nothing that is hidden from him, and he is not stained with any unrighteousness, for he is holy, holy, holy. God alone is in the position to render a righteous judgment. Now, here is the impending doom for those who operate with this false understanding of inherent goodness because they sincerely believe that they will escape the judgment of God if there is a God in their minds who renders judgment. You see, they see themselves on this spectrum of good and evil and they place themselves on the side of good. How far towards the the good depends upon their level of self-delusion. But when they compare themselves to the most wretched among us, they believe that they will escape God's eternal judgment because they're good. Air quotes again. And in fact, they believe that most people are basically good, which only adds to their sense of eternal safety. They've lived for many years and God's not struck them down with cancer at the age of 30. They've not died in a fiery car crash at 40. They have been blessed with a wonderful career by the time they are 50. 
and so on and so on. And they conclude that if that God, if there is a God, must be pleased with them. And Paul asks this man a question. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, Paul is calling this man's conclusion into question. This man concluded that because he had a happy life, that God was pleased with him just the way he was. And that's what Paul or Saul had done. All the privileges that life afforded him, all the advancements that came his way, all the accomplishments that he attained, all of it was evidence in his mind that God was pleased with Saul of Tarsus. It never even entered his mind that he stood condemned in the sight of God. And just as the risen Christ burst Saul's bubble one day on the road to Damascus, so Paul now bursts the bubble of this man when he reveals that his hard and impenitent heart is working against his eternal security. All the while he mistakenly believes that God is pleased with him, he is storing up wrath for himself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Paul says. And this man to whom Paul is speaking is a man whose sense of moral superiority will eventually be his downfall. He operates under the notion that he can do no wrong, that his actions are always pure and righteous, that his motivations are always good and right. What he does not see is that everything he touches is polluted by sin. He's like a destitute drunkard living in the streets of a filthy city, covered from head to toe in soot and grime, who dumpster dives for food and discovers a worthless empty wallet that is torn and tattered and covered with slimy grease of unknown origins and thinks that he can sell it to a wealthy individual for enough money to earn a shower somewhere as well as a new suit of clothes. Everything that this self-righteous man believes is being added to his account is actually like that. He sees it as a spiritual asset when it is simply one more thing on an accumulating pile of God's wrath. So do we see how spiritually dangerous this position is? And yet that is descriptive of people all around us. It's descriptive of people in our neighborhood, in our circle of friends, in our families, many people who even this morning are seated in church pews, unaware that their hard and impenitent hearts have kept them from true repentance because they have not deemed that necessary. And if I operate under the false idea that people are basically good, I've not been listening to the word of God who declares that there is none who is righteous. No, not one. Now the day of wrath to which Paul refers will reveal God's righteous judgment. And he says in verse 6 that God will render to each one according to his works. 
So imagine how awful that will be for the one who's been stacking up worthless, greasy, dirty, tattered, empty wallets, thinking that he will receive some great reward. Now we want to be careful here that we do not draw a wrong conclusion. Because Paul is about to separate the sheep from the goats here, for he refers to two different groups of individuals. There are those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, and there are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And the verdicts of these two groups of individuals will be very different. To one, God will pronounce them not guilty, and to them he will give eternal life. To the other, they will be found guilty, and there will be wrath and fury. But where we want to be careful has to do with this statement that God will render to each one according to his works, for that makes it sound like salvation is based upon a scale where our good works are weighed against our deeds of unrighteousness and rewards are offered based upon how the scale tips. And we know that is not what Paul is saying because he's been very clearly saying that the righteous shall live by faith. We also know that he's not thinking about an obedience to the law as having any salvific value for he decimates that argument in what is about to follow. And Paul will make use of Father Abraham in the chapters to come because Abraham came before the law of Moses. What made Abraham righteous in the sight of God was faith in God. He believed God, and that was counted unto him as righteousness. The moment that Abraham believed the word of God to him, God justified him in his sight. But then Abraham's faith led to action. He left Ur of the Chaldees in obedience, journeyed to the land that God would show him. And throughout his life, Abraham trusted the word of God and obeyed. And this is what Paul is arguing here. The deeds of those who receive eternal life are not the root. They are the fruit. These deeds spring forth from their faith in Christ. And if their faith in Christ is a true faith, it will produce fruit that will spring forth from start to finish. The word that Paul uses here that is translated as patience in the ESV and as persistence in the NIV and as perseverance in the New American Standard is a word that carries with it a sense of longevity. A word that never considers surrender as an option. It is a long walk in the same direction. And it indicates that Paul is speaking about an individual who does not grow weary in well-doing, but who perseveres until the end. And what these individuals are seeking is what only God can provide. Glory and honor and immortality. And these are those who have come to Christ and set their minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. They know that their attainment of these things are not because of their good works, but because of Christ's good works. 
And they're not relying upon what they do. They're relying upon what Christ has done. But they do good because He did good. Their heart has been reoriented away from any self-righteousness to emulating their Savior whose righteousness has been accounted to them. Now we need to recognize here that Paul is saying that every single person will be judged according to his works. No one will attain eternal life because of their family affiliation or their church affiliation or their genetic background or anything like that. This is a judgment upon every single person who has ever lived and they will be judged individually. So what of those who are deemed by God to be self-seeking, who have not obeyed the truth, but have chased after unrighteousness? Paul says they will receive God's wrath and fury. For them there will be tribulation and distress. Now here's a subject that is so disturbing to many who have been tasked with proclaiming the gospel that they refuse to address it. But as we will see next week, this judgment of the secrets of men is a part of the gospel. To ignore the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ Jesus is something that the world needs to know. It's something that every person needs to know. To proclaim a message of universalism or the idea that everyone is eventually saved, as one of my seminary professors intimated, is an act of prophetic malfeasance. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So let me fearfully say to you, friends, there's judgment coming, and it will fall upon every single person. And some will be rewarded with eternal life, For they will have placed their faith completely in Jesus Christ as their only Savior and Lord. But others will receive the wrath and the fury of God for all eternity because they preferred in this life to chase after vain things, empty things, selfish pursuits, disparaging the things of Christ. And the sad thing is that God is long-suffering towards us, not wanting that any should perish but that all should come to faith in Christ. And yet people's love affair with sin is such that they continually refuse to turn to Christ in genuine repentance. But the door is always open. As the minister who had a profound effect on me would say at the end of every service, there is still room. 
And even now, if you hear his voice calling your name to come to him, then do it without hesitation. Do not wait. Do not delay. But wherever you are, confess to him your sin and your need for a Savior and bow your knee and trust in him alone to save you. And he promises that he will not cast you out. And he's able to do that because he absorbed for you all of the wrath and all of the fury of God on Calvary's tree. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer.